Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Buff Burkell, a retired United States Air Force colonel and inspirational and motivational speaker who travels the country sharing her story of survival and resilience. In October 2015, the helicopter she and eight others were riding in crashed inside a NATO base in Afghanistan. She was one of only a few survivors and suffered a near-fatal spine injury. Now, she travels the country sharing the lessons she's learned about resilience. I won't get too much into her story here because she shares it in detail in this conversation. The thing I will key you towards or have you pay attention to is the way she talks about her story and the way she talks about resilience. She has a very community-based approach to building resilience that I think we can all learn from and that, that I think really is, is actually pretty refreshing and strengthening. So I think there's something in here that everybody can latch onto no matter what they're going through in their own lives. And that's why I'm so excited to share this conversation. Here is Buff Burkell. And we are live. Buff, it is an honor to have you on the show. I'm really interested in exploring your story and I guess also the lessons that you have taken from it and that you have shared with your community because I, I know you're out sharing this story a lot. And I think especially now that we were just talking before we hit record, we're headed into uh, air quote dark winter of the pandemic here. And, uh, you know, resilience is a topic that's going to be on a lot of people's minds, resilience and mental health. So I think it would be a good starting point just to have you start telling your story and would love to have you share that with the audience. Sure. So I'm Buff Perkel. I retired from the United States Air Force as a colonel, served 27 and a half years. I retired in December of 2018. And my story really revolves around my deployment to Afghanistan in 2015. Uh, I got there in July of 2015, and I served over there as an air advisor to the Afghan Air Force. And so what we're doing over there was working with them to kind of improve the professionalism and evolve their Air Force and increase its capability uh, and professionalize it kind of like we're still working on our Air Force and our military. And some of the things in my portfolio that we had were training, pilot training, maintenance officer training, their manpower, all of the things that like at a high school, you have a document that says, here's how many teachers we should have for this, that, whatever. Same thing in a professionalization for an Air Force. You know, a squadron of X kind of airplane should have this, and that's, that's manpower. Personnel. Uh, training with the uh, kind of like the Afghan Air Force Academy sort of equivalent, gender integration, which is big, especially with the NATO folks uh, looking, watching over that portfolio because we did fall under under the NATO. We were NATO Air Training Command or NATO NATO Tech Air Training Air Command 
So we were their air portfolio. And so we, we took care of the folks in the wing, the Air Force, and we had, I had a Navy officer, I had a Marine officer. Um, and so we, every day, would go out and we'd go advise with our Afghans, or we'd be doing work in, in, in portfolios that related to that. And so one project we worked on was to update their manning document of the Air Force. And there's about mm, 8,800 authorizations positions in the Afghan Air Force. And at the time, it was 195,000 or so uh, authorizations in the Afghan Defense Force, which was the Air, uh, the Air Force, the Army, the Police Force, and then their Special Operations Forces that they had. So we went, took all of our advisors and went out and said, okay, work with your Afghan counterparts. What should this document, how should it change to improve the, the, the professional structure of the organization? Worked really hard on that document. And in October of 2015, we needed to make a trip over to the NATO headquarters to travel to the Afghan Ministry of National Defense to brief those results. And it wasn't us that was going to brief. It was the Afghan colonel uh, who's going to brief those with us in support. And so we worked on that. And so that necessitated travel. And on Sunday afternoon, 11 October of 2015, we were supposed to take a helicopter ride, go to NATO headquarters, spend the night, get up the next morning, walk over to the Ministry of Defense, and then come back to NATO headquarters and fly back to our base that we worked out of, which is right next to the... I imagine that... Yeah, well, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. That sounds pretty routine, right? Mm-hmm. The travel. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. like taking a, taking a taxi ride, yes. spending the night, having a business presentation and coming back. Yep. And that that's how people did. I had been over to the, uh, to the NATO headquarters once before for a gender integration conference. We took helicopters and that's just because of the, the threats and the risks of traveling by ground in, in Kabul made it such that NATO had a pretty robust kind of travel schedule for folks. And it was not, not unusual for anybody of any rank from the four star that ran the headquarters on down to whoever contractor Get going to and from if they had business. They at one point in a few ground convoys that did things, but most people took that. And so there was a there was a constant flow of helicopters and types of helicopters that, that supported the, those movements. And so folks all over from all points all over Kabul and then of course across Afghanistan. And if it was required fly, a fixed wing like a, an airplane, it would fly into Kabul International and then they take the hop, which is about five minutes. So my folks had set that trip up, and it was going to be. There was the four of us, it was me, my major, who was my deputy for that personnel portfolio. Um, my new master sergeant had been been in country for about a week. He had done turnover with his, the person he replaced, and she left the day before. And they had worked together to set up the travel because they're the ones that typically would set up our travel. And it was me, and then I had a contractor who had been in the Army, but had done a lot of this manpower contract advising several times over the many... Uh, several years worth that he'd done that various assignments. He'd come over and do this. So the folks and the Afghans knew him pretty well. And of course they had gotten to know my master sergeant that was leaving. And so my, my other master sergeant was new, but they had met each other uh, and were going to work together. And so we went over Sunday afternoon, which is a pretty quiet, usually a pretty quiet day there in Afghanistan. Most folks, it's kind of the day some people take quote off there and take some time to recharge. Um, but for us, so it was quiet. So that afternoon, you know, we got ready. They were having an exercise at, at the Kabul International Airport where we were flying from. And it's about a five-minute flight. So we're about, we took off a little late. No big deal. Uh, it was sunny, about 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, and we were number two of two. So I got to use my hands like a fighter pilot. And so we're in the, the second helicopter flying like this. And it was a British Puma Mark II helicopter, which I had never been on a British helicopter. So I was really excited about this. 
I'm a C-130, C-141 navigator by trade. We call, again, fixed wing, rotary wing, or helicopters, that they, they wrote the rotation of the blades. And so we get in that helicopter, and I sat down. I sat next to a Lithuanian major, me. The seat next to me is empty, so I put my backpack, my old right bag there, and then Roy, my contractor. And the other side, Greg, my master sergeant, got in and sat down the far back. Nobody sat back to back to me. So we had six passengers, two empty seats, and we lifted off, and we went over there. And I remember as we lifted off, I kind of looked over, I'm looking in the front, at the instruments going, how cool, you know, kind of neat. What's the cockpit like? And I, I touched Phyllis's shoulder. And Phyllis is a personnel officer. She actually taught German at the Air Force Academy. And I leaned over and went, woohoo, we're getting to fly. Because I was excited about that. And that's the last thing I got to say to her uh, because she was killed in the crash that ensued after a little later down the road here. So we fly over there. And again, about five minutes. And we come into land and at NATO headquarters, it's a soccer field. And everybody, 10,000 plus landings a year. And the things, these things I'm telling you, I know because the British wrote a report, the crash, they investigated it um, because I don't remember a chunk of time in this story that I'm going to tell you. And I'm able to tell it to you because of the report and the people that I have met who are part of the story. And so coming coming into land, the pilots notice some folks on the field, the lead pilots notice people. And again, we were about 15 minutes late. It was really no big deal. We were scheduled arrivals. I knew we were coming. We were just a little bit late. And there are people out in the soccer field. So the lead helicopter said, look, we need to go back around. So we went to do that. And as we did that, our pilots started talking about things on the ground, which is not uncommon. Here's the, you know, here's the palace. Here's this. And in doing that conversation, they lose sight of the lead helicopter who had started to make their turn back, come back around to come back to land. That contributes to the crash that, that follows. It's not the cause. It contributes to it. So they realize that they need to, hey, we need to get back inside a lead. So they make a turn. Uh, and as they do that, there is a what's called a persistent threat detection system surveillance boom, like a little white blimp, balloon blimp above the, the NATO headquarters, persistent threat detection system. It's there looking for bad guys on the margins of the of the encampment, and it's tethered to the ground by a pretty solid tether cable. Well, our guys lose the situational awareness of where that is in relation to flight paths that contributes to the crash because we strike the tether. And the way we strike the tether is we're coming forward and it comes around and gets stuck on the back spine of the helicopter. And for 17 seconds, it interacts with the back of the helicopter. Now, I realize they've hit this thing. They're trying to fly it. At that 17 second mark, it gets caught in a two to three millimeter gap in the cowling in the back where... The, the tail rotor drive shaft is. And the tail rotor is a little blade in the back that keeps spinning. And that's a physics thing, which I learned from this, that without that, that helicopter is not going to fly because it kind of- Yeah, it's like two gyroscopes, right? Uh-huh. Yep. It counters the what the big one, the, top, the one on top is doing. So when that stops working, that's no longer a flyable aircraft. And it takes us seven seconds to impact the ground going over 4,000 feet per minute. In that seven seconds, they somehow shut the engines off and so the way the tether damages the helicopter is the cause of the actual crash. And in that seven seconds, they shut the engines off, somehow maneuver that aircraft enough to be able to crash into the NATO compound, one of the more wider boulevards, if you want to call it that, that only a Turkish colonel got injured. So if you Google this crash, it says five injured and five killed. There were, there were nine of us on that helicopter than the Turkish colonel, uh, which is absolutely amazing. By shutting the engines off, that kind of helped prevent a fireball. Um, NATO headquarters is a place that's been there since, what, 2001, 2002, 2003, whatever. A lot of little, you know, people have been continuously deployed or working there ever since. 
and it's a place that's got you know little passageways and built you know built up uh, trailer containers, uh, shipment containers, and things like that. So there's a lot of people, a lot of sure. stuff. little mobile offices and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it is definitely definitely an amazing thing that it didn't injure or damage or kill more people. Uh, so we hit the ground, and within 15 seconds, people are running out of buildings, running towards that crash um, with fire extinguishers. And doing that, there was not a lot of fire, but there was a lot of jet fuel all over because I have some of the, my items that were recovered and sent back to me still have the jet fuel smell. And the way we hit the ground was kind of cocked nose up to the right. And so the way the helicopter impacts the ground, and I have a picture that just when I show that picture in a presentation, people just they cannot believe anyone lived through it. Uh, it ghastly is I, how I would describe it. I, I saw it in something that you had sent over. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to look at it. And for me, I, you know, I, I'm not disembodied from it, but it's hard to believe anyone lived through it. But the five people on the right-hand side were killed. So the pilot, the person in the back, which I kind of you can call him a loadmaster, a door gunner. I don't know. They are killed. The French contractor, Phyllis, my major, who's sitting back to back to me, and then Greg, my master sergeant, are all killed. The four of us on the left-hand side all survived various stages of, of injury. The pilot up front, I know, had serious head injuries. I don't know how he's doing now. I know he had brain bruises and all kinds of... I don't, I'm pretty sure he's never flown since. Uh, Roy, my contractor, two seats to my right and towards the front, he was the lightest physically injured. But the thing about him was, as I said, he had done some other tours he was in the Afghan Air Force headquarters building back in April of 2011 when an Afghan officer walked in there with a gun and shot and killed nine U.S. Air Force advisors. Roy was actually, oh, wow. yeah, he was in the building when that was happening. And he was actually advising the same colonel we were going to go work with on the day of our crash. So you can imagine what was going through his mind as he's in this wrecked helicopter. So he's... He's got his arm and he's waving because the door had been open along the side just because it was such a short flight. And the reason the person's, one of the reasons the person's in the back is that there's a gun back there as we cross over some ridge lines to look for, you know, folks that might want to take shots at us. That's some of what I, why I call them a door gunner. The few helicopter rides I had, that was one of that person in the back. Once we would get around, their job is to look for threats and, and try to, you know, respond to them if there was a need to. And so that door is open. So Roy's like this. I broke my neck. We'll go talk more about that here in a minute or two. The last thing I remember is the descent. And I remember kind of starting to descend. We stopped the descent. And I remember going, huh, that's kind of weird. And then I don't remember anything until I'm now in a hospital bed with a collar on around my neck and my leadership and in, in looking at me very gravely. In the interim, a lot of stuff happens. The crash was that in Afghanistan or was that yes, that was back in, in Germany? Okay. No, this is oh okay. the, coming coming back to that's in Afghanistan. Yeah, that's in Afghanistan. And you I'll, woke you woke up in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Now wait, waking up is an interesting term because I was actually not completely unconscious, at least not the entire time. I'll go. I'll tell you some of the things I said and did. <laughs> some of them are funny. They're interesting. That what do you think you're going to do when you're not going to have any recollection whatsoever of doing something, right? You know that thing where your your mom says, "Hey, you know, make sure we're clean underwear so in case you're in a crash." It's like your mom would say, "Hey, make sure you think of something smart to say if you're in a crash and you start talking and you don't remember it." <laughs> that would kind of be some of what what happens. So these so folks run towards this helicopter and like I said, fire extinguishers. They f run to the front first because they know there's pilots. They don't know really what's in the back. 
So they run the front and they're starting to talk and work the pilots. And then they see Roy's arm. And apparently I'm yelling, get me out of here, get us out of here, whatever. And so they come around to the the left side because the right side, again, is is kind of the side that you can't get to it. And so they get Roy out in about 11 minutes and 20 some odd seconds. They get him out. And then they get me out 15 minutes and 25 seconds, I think it is, because that's all in the report. That's how I know that. But you know, I was lifting my hips and helping them get me out with a broken neck. So I lifted my hips up as helping them get us because that the, the volume of livable space in that helicopter went down to a third of what it was. And that just, it was 16 to 32 Gs of force. Yeah. It's wow. sobering just to know just how crushed. And that's where, you know, the people that were killed were probably very, in, it was instant, instant um, that they, that they passed except for one of the pilots up front. I know that one of the pilots up front was alive. The pilot front was alive for a while and then passed, I think at some point, but so they get me out and then uh, Povolos, the Lithuanian who's on my right next to me on the left-hand side, it took them 90 minutes to get him out because they had to go around to the back and cut a hole because it was so crushed in there. They had to get a hole and cut him out. And then Phyllis, my major who was deceased, she was the last person they pulled out at the 98 minute mark. So we had two Marines an air force civilian there is a British gunny sergeant equivalent and several other people, some Air Force folks, a bunch of people, They, which when I talk about this, I highlight they represent the best of our character, the human selflessness that running towards that thing, right? It still makes me emotional, but the th- but those folks never have to think about, so if, you know, where you live right now, if something happens in the street, in my street, I'll just use my street as an example, that we, we think we're going to run out there. We believe we hope and believe that we're going to run out there and do something, right? But we're not sure. And here, we're not 100% sure because maybe we've never had to do that before. All these folks answered that question that day and ran towards it. And I'm here today certainly because of that. Have you talked to them about that? Yeah, absolutely. I've met most of them. I, I would be curious. I know you had, you had mentioned to me you know, offline when we were prepping for this that you had had conversations with a lot of these folks. And was there anything that they said that stuck with you about their reaction? Just it was very matter-of-factly that that's what they did. You know, it wasn't like, well, I really worried about it. There's the, some of them have stories about other folks that were trying to take, you know, taking pictures or were not being contributing to the, if you want to call it rescue operation, that it seemed like everybody has had a role. The gunny sergeant, one of the Marines was in the wreckage because he was smaller. He could get in and amongst stuff. The selflessness of it, not thinking about the fact that there was jet fuel everywhere, that one spark and this would have been a huge, much worse nightmare. I met an Italian, the first, I spent one night at, at our hospital at Bagram that first night. And they told me there was an Italian that was there for smoke inhalation. And so when I met the first person who was a part of the story, um, a friend, some friends drove him over. Uh, he's Air Force. Now he's a master sergeant. Um, he was one of, he was a person security detail for one of the generals there. And he came over and we, we chatted. My brother was there because I'd had my surgery. I'd I ended up having to wear a halo and my sister was there and they were turning over and Josh came over and we, we got to talk to him. And so he filled in so many of the blanks that I couldn't answer. I didn't know. And you know what it was, it wasn't smoke inhalation it was fire extinguisher, particularly everybody ran out with these fire extinguishers. So in and around the space that inhaling the fire extinguisher particulates. So what that Italian who I did get to meet that first night and I, what I remember about meeting him was he, we shook my hand and I think he about crushed the heck out of my hand, but I'm so glad to say thank you to him. Of course. I mean, I've gotten, it's so powerful. Imagine 
thanking someone who saved your life. Imagine getting to see the person whose life you saved later down the road after after the story after the after the event happens. And so I'm in touch with so many of those. In fact, I just met another person who is part of the story. His his what he said after we met is really powerful because he's a person I didn't even know existed as part of my story. And that's what happens to me is I tell the story and I get people who are part of it that I didn't know were part of it because again I don't remember it. So here's what he says. He says, I say, hey, it was so awesome to connect. And he says, it absolutely was. I appreciate the opportunity to get together. It felt like a massive weight was lifted off my chest, knowing that terrible day had a light at the end of the tunnel. This is a guy who five years later, I mean, you know, he seems fine. You talk to him, he's fully functional, but to know that he's been carrying something around for five years and that by chance we connect and we get to, we get to kind of provide each other more of that story that that gives him, Hey, here's some, you know, the purpose in what we were doing that day is, is, and I tell him, for example, the Lithuanian who survived the crash, he has a son now, that son would not be here today without folks like, like this guy. So let me, let me ask you about that then, because I know I've heard you say resilience is not an individual sport. And I think that relates to some of what you're talking about here, where when you tell this story, I mean, you can't help but fill in all of the characters, right? And, and that seems to be so important to you to really recognize all of the people who were there, not only the people who survived, but the people who didn't and the people who helped. And, you know, oftentimes when we're going through something hard or, or when we have gone through something hard, it, there's a tendency or there can be a tendency to focus on like, this happened to me. This was my experience. I'm singular in this, you know, and and it can feel very isolating, but to you, you've almost made this a community thing that happened. And so how do you think about that? How do you think about other people that are involved and how how do you think about, or, or what goes on in your head when you hear me say that? I'm just curious your thoughts. There are so many people that this one event affected on so many levels. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, the sole U.S. military survivor of this crash, but there is five families. There are four survivors. There are the people who heard it, the people who responded to it, the people who worked with the people, the people who worked with me, the people who, you know, are here today because of things people did. The the connections. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing, you know, resilience is not an individual sport for me. What, what that's about is, is that I know you're resilient. You, you have a lot of personal resilience, but you can't get to all of that on your own. We're really, as humans, we're not really meant to, to be solitary all the time. We're not meant to, to live our lives in complete solitary means and ways. And so our resilience is, is within us, but we need each other to be able to access it. We can get to a lot of it on our own, but we need each other to really realize the full potential of what that resilience that lies within us. And so that's where my resilience is not an individual sport comes into play, whether it's literally the guys that help get me out of the helicopter or get all of us out. In the front helicopter was a U.S. Uh, Navy lieutenant commander. And I just got reconnected to her recently. And she has, a medical, she has some medical training, I guess, in her, in her personal life. And so they thought we'd been shot down. And so when they finally got to land, she came over to the crash area and she's, she, you know, what can I do to help? 
and she sees me laying there and I'm complaining about my neck hurting and nobody had put a collar to protect my neck. So she says, stop, don't touch that kernel, lock her neck down. Absolutely helped save my life because I, I literally have the same injury that Christopher Reeve had. I, my C2, which is sec- the second from the top, was cracked clean through. It's called a hangman's fracture because when a hangman hangs you, that's what they want it to look like. And it was cracked. It was a little, a little bit twisted and it was really a very dangerous break. In addition to that, a little lower down, my C5-6, the disc in between those two had, in my Air Force records, it says herniated. If you see a picture of it, it's crushed. <laughs> and so that was, that then, that begets, begets what's called a com- near complete internal decapitation. And that was really bad. I mean, when I showed that x-ray picture or MRI picture to medical folks, they freak out. They literally freak out about how seriously broken and my neck was. Of course, I have no idea that. And she didn't really know it was that bad, but she she's the one that stabilized my neck and probably helped save me because when they picked me up, carried me to a helicopter ride that I don't remember back to where we started into the clinic where I come back into my story, I have I could have done something moved and finished that break. Well, and like you said, you were moving your hips and helping people get you mm-hmm. out. I mean, any one of those little things could have been disastrous. With no with no support on my neck, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so she she did it, but I'll tell you that I just got reconnected back to her and she had did did not tell her family about really the details of what happened over there because her parents are frightened, were concerned about her flying the helicopters. So she didn't tell anybody about that. She's just retired, so she shared some of the stuff that she's she's experienced. So some of us, you know, we all you ask about grief and and how we how we deal with stuff. It's it, what I've learned from this experience is it's such a spectrum of how people deal with it, and we need to be compassionate of that. We need to be agile enough to realize that you know the way I grieve is different than the way you grieve. And each situation and what's going on in your life is going to kind of change that. Your resilience is agile, but it can be worn down if you if you're calling on it a lot. It can get fatigued just it's to me that's kind of what you know and that's where our connections can kind of help us keep us going in those times when when our when our 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 resilience is fatigued i say everybody in the world right now has probably got some fatigue on the resilience with you know dealing with covid dealing with the unknown so when you woke up in the clinic and started to come to the realization of what had happened were you automatically drawn to the experiences of, of the other people around you and were you thinking about those other people or was that something that happened over time as you processed the event? Well, I woke up saying, where are Phyllis and Greg and Roy? I mean, I got told that I met one of the doctors that took care of me, an Australian flight doctor, who she told me that when they brought me in, I was asking and she, I would not lay down. She finally said, she finally got me to lay down when they told me my contractor, Roy, was like in the next bed over from me. So I was focused on my people and, and, and taking care of my people from the beginning. And, and they didn't tell me about what happened. It's later that evening, my captain that ended up going with me to uh, Germany finally is like, ma'am, they're gone for Phyllis and Greg anyway. I got to see Roy in his room. And that's pretty amazing. So if you want to talk about how resilience and connections work, I get to Bagram on another helicopter. So I'm in the bed with the collar on. They're like, yeah. And they've seen the x-rays I'm like, oh, this is bad. I'm like, hey, we're gonna have to get you up to the hospital, the main hospital here, American hospital in, in Afghanistan. And it, and I knew about where it was. It's an Air Force base, an air base. 
And I knew the safe way to go was to fly versus like, we're going to be a helicopter ride. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I just was in a crash. I don't want to be in a helicopter. And like, well, but I knew that was the safest way to do it. So that flight, I do remember. And one of the pilots was on that flight with me. I remember that. And so they take me up to that hospital, which is a more robust hospital than the role, the medical clinic that we, that we were in at Bull International. And I'm there and I was ambulatory. They let me walk around which fascinates and freaks out a lot of medical people, but I was ambulatory. So I had to walk to Roy, my contractor's room to just see how he was doing. And so we were sitting there, we were talking and all of a sudden the curtain on the bed next to his comes back. And it's that Turkish Colonel that I talked about earlier who was injured in the crash. And so we started to talk and we sat there, the three of us, we held hands and we started to heal. We started to kind of, begin that journey. I mean, I guess it began the moment we hit the ground, I suppose, but we we continued that journey of healing and our connection enabled some of our resilience as we started prepared that journey of, of healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. And, you know, uh, Roy went back to work because he was hurt seriously physically for a little while, for a couple of days, and then he went home and he's not been back to Afghanistan. I've gotten to see him a few times. What was the value of sitting there and holding hands and beginning that healing process. Like what, what did that feel like? Or what did that, what did that trigger mentally? Common experience. Um, we were in that helicopter together. I don't know if I knew at that point that I think I knew at that point that Phyllis and Greg were gone. I can't remember, but we had gone through that experience together and we didn't know about the Turkish Colonel, but he had experienced it because it crashed and it injured him. So we were, it was this common connection that we shared and we didn't know we had it until literally that, you know, that at that time. And so one of the things I highlight when I tell my story is it, is it with the resilience is not an individual sport is we need each other to celebrate the good stuff that, that happens. Cause there's some good stuff I can talk about. And then when we have the bad, you know, who do you turn to when you get some good news, who do you want to share that with? you get some bad news or something bad happens. Who do you want to share it with? You know, you cultivate those. Sometimes it's the people you've, you've made the effort to cultivate those connections. And sometimes it's because they're a part of that immediate story, like Roy and the Turkish Colonel, you know, what, what I tell people is we are, are literally, we, we are our nation, and of course, for the people in the air force, and then our loved ones, greatest treasures and those connections that we make. And they take a little bit of work here and there they matter. And that's why I say resilience isn't something that it just pops up when, when something happens, you are cultivating it in the good times. You know, this, this, the hockey that I'm playing, you know, we're cultivating these bonds with folks that I didn't know these guys three months ago. Right. And now I do, now I'm playing hockey with them. We're learning and we're, we're dealing with the pandemic crisis together because we get to go out on the ice and spend that time together and kind of forget all that. And so that resilience within us is, the, the connections help us get at it and when we need it. And it's not something that's just a momentary thing. Well, so you had mentioned, you know, being able to rely on other people when your resilience goes down. And when you're talking about that shared, having that shared experience, it makes me think too, that like, as you're going through that grief, you're sharing the grief, you know, and, and somehow, you know, you could, you, you know, you hear like one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. It's like all of your grief together doesn't necessarily equal more grief. It's, it's almost seems like you were able to all share the same grief, 
which maybe makes it a little bit less the percentage that you have to carry. And I guess I've, I've never thought about that, but that that makes sense. And I just think about times that I've had shared experience with people and and talk, we, that talking through it can be so cathartic. And you, know, you think about it, well, it's, it's cathartic because you're just getting it off your chest, but it's also cathartic because you're sharing it. And now everybody is kind of sharing that experience. You're experiencing it together. Yeah. Have you read Tribe by Sebastian Young? Oh, it's right over there. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It seems like that relates to this a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, you know, when we look at, you know, military and we, you know, have our veterans that come back who have these, these crucible, you know, experiences that they come back and they come back to a different environment. And that's why I think this, you know, this, the veterans hockey and some of the other, the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program has adaptive sports as well. And seeing people who are struggling with trying to carry the weight of their experiences, these are some wonderful outlets for that, that they're able to, first of all, there's a a group of people that have that common bond, right? And I think that, that commonality, and I think sometimes when we stop and we think, we're all a little more common to each other and connected than we honest, than we think sometimes. We're all carrying something. That's why I tell people is the, the Los Angeles Dodgers just won the World Series, right? Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning just won the Stanley Cup and they have their lives are awesome. But every one of the people on those teams, from the players to the staff, are carrying things around. They're carrying stuff that is good and they're carrying tough stuff that they're that they're, they're holding and, and they're dealing with every day. And our ability to deal with that stuff changes as our life circumstances change. Some days it's better. You know, uh, my mom passed away seven and a half years ago. And there are days where out of the blue, I'll just think, I'll tell you that she and my Air Force mom were my guardian angels in that helicopter. And then I now have two more, Phyllis and Greg, that I keep all four of them very busy, (laughs) believe me. Um, (laughs) You know, I look at that, that I'm still connected with them. You know, when I talk about Phyllis and Greg, I don't talk about them in past tense. I talk about physically, yes, they're gone, but spiritually and intellectually, they're still a part of, I see them in, in people every day and I live my life with them, not for them. I think when we, when we are grieving and we get that for thing, well, I want to do this for, it's actually with, I think is a healthier way to approach. It. I think a more resilient way to approach it that I look at how do I like this podcast to me is celebrating them. It's celebrating the great people that the heroes that ran towards that helicopter and it's celebrating the people that we lost that day. But it also represents all of anybody that, that we collectively have lost. that so we, we continue to grieve that. And the thing about grief is it doesn't, you know, our society is let's package it up and you'll get over it. Okay. You're good. You grieved. You're going to get over it. And that's garbage. You grieve for, I mean, I'm on this, this grief journey for the rest of my life. And it's just simply what it is. And if you look at it that way, and you take that longer view, then this, this pressure to kind of put it away and forget about it kind of goes away. And you just kind of go, okay, this is a part of my life and I'm carrying it. And where's there good in that? And on the days when the good is harder to find, then when, how can my resilience kind of help me continue to keep pushing? Cause I'll tell you that, you know, I was airlifted to, to, Longstool Regional Medical Center in Germany. I spent three and a half months there. With the broken neck, I got to wear a halo. So I'm a colonel who missed having screws loose in my head. I had six screws, put my skull for the top piece, and then I had a vest and four poles to keep that 
C2 that kept that kind of in traction. Uh, the good in that, that was obviously it fabulously healed because I'm out playing hockey and doing things like hiking mountains and stuff. And it was uh, blessed uh, to, to have it heal that way. But as I was in my, you know, the time that I spent in my room, I sat there and, and I'm like, Phyllis and Greg would never let me sit in my room and feel sorry for myself. They would expect me to get up, keep moving, you know, keep getting on with it. And so, you know, I have friends that are deployed to Afghanistan and elsewhere. And I tell them, you're carrying the work they were doing forward. Maybe not the specific work, but just that, that spirit of service, that spirit of a greater good forward. And I think if we look at things that way, you know, when, when I see on Facebook, my a friend's parent passes away. I usually will say, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that, sending you prayers and thoughts of comfort. And, 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 and hopefully you can look at all the people that they touched in their life. They live on in the good that they brought into those people. And so I kind of look at, you know, Phyllis and Greg and the good they brought into this world that it's continued forward. And so I find myself living my day-to-day life in the things that I do is with them, not for them. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. The question I have is, where did the outward view come from? Was it something that was forged through the military? Or was it something that was forged in something before that? Like, Because I, I think I like everything that you're saying, and I think there's so much that people can learn from it in dealing with grief by opening themselves up and by looking at the other people and their experience. And I think so many times when you hear about people who really fall into debilitating grief or debilitating depression, it's it's because they they can't stop focusing inward and they or the, or they feel like they have to hold it. You know, like like they can't let anybody else in and they can't share it. And so I'm just curious about where that comes from and whether that was a conscious choice or whether that was something that was like ingrained earlier. Because, you know, I'm curious for myself too, you know, how do we train ourselves without having to go through that experience? How do we train ourselves so that we have that outlook so that we can be community-based or community-focused and not just internally focused? Well, I guess it would be my upbringing. I mean, I come from a family of five. My parents were fairly strict, but they gave us every opportunity to pursue the things we we want to pursue. You know, I was going to be an orthodontist. I had friends that were doing the ROTC, the Air Force ROTC program. And so I decided to give that a try. I liked the team concept. I'm a sports person, obviously with hockey and all the other sports I've played and play. That I want to give that a try. To me, it it resonated with me more than than being an orthodontist. And thank God I did, because I think I would have been not all that happy as an orthodontist. And I did 27 years in the Air Force. As an officer, you know, we're we lead, and we're, and we're kind of we, we're we are focusing on taking care of our people. The Air Force is. tell you selfless service right service before self now some of our wounded warriors would tell you to what end you know there's a lot of talk about self-care and so there's a balance there of focusing on everybody else to your own detriment you have to take care of yourself because if you don't you aren't going to be there for people when they need to lean on you when they when they when they need your help getting at their own resilience there's that balance a good point and so how do you it's okay to take care of yourself and how, how did you balance that in your recovery? I so it was hard to be ripped away from my job in Afghanistan. I worked, you know, hundred plus straight days. 
Now I'm up in Germany. I have really nothing specifically on my schedule. You know, it was that was an interesting transition. But you know what? The outpouring of support, I had like a thousand emails to respond to. I had like Facebook because I started putting stuff on Facebook and that was interesting. So before I left Bagram, the base, the, the hospital in Afghanistan, Phyllis and Greg's families are being told what happened. And there's a process and there's a timeline of how we tell families who've lost a loved one. But how do I, as a as a as an injured you know person, tell my family and friends that that I'm injured but I'm okay, and I'm about to get onto a C-17 you know cargo plane and take a take a long flight up to Germany? So how do I do that? Well, I took a photo with a, a friend of mine who come to visit me. He was the the vice wing commander of that base, and I had traveled over on deployment with him. And he came to visit and it was there that was like, Hey man, we're going to get you on the C-17. And that's actually sort of a funny story. And that's actually part of the resilience, the be, sort of the beginning of how the resilience kind of comes into play is they come into the room and they're like, Hey man, we're going to put you on the C-17. We're going to litter you on this plane. And I'm like, Oh, you are not littering me on an airplane. <laughs> no. Now what, what does litter mean? Carry you on a stretcher. I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I'm not being carried onto any airplane. Again, I had said that they had let me walk around that hospital that night. My captain, I think, knew the severity of my injury. I don't know if they told me. I don't know that I really, it had made that impression upon me. And so they come in with that. And I'm like, well, no, I no, no. Uh, I'm like, no, no, no. Three things. One, I'm an air crew member. We don't get littered onto airplanes like football players. They will do everything they can to walk off the field, whether they have to be half, you know, dragged by their two guys. They're not going to be carted off the field, right? Two, I walked into this effing country. I want to walk out of this effing country. Three, I lost two people in this crash. I want to respect and honor them and walk out. So the medical folks were like, oh my God, they could have just said, no, I'm grateful. They actually said yes. And when I talk to them, I tell them that's where some of my healing literally started at that point, because I had, I walked up the ramp. So they literally, they brought me in a litter to the ramp. I didn't have shoes. I didn't get any shoes. Probably a smart idea. <laughs> I had socks. And then <laughs> carefully I walked up into the airplane. They put my litter, my you know, thing onto the the stanchions where they had the frame in the back of the airplane. And there was supposed to be, I think one of the one of the British colonels was or uh, pilots was supposed to be on the plane with me and he he, he wasn't there. It was that airplane brought me to Germany. And ironically my friends here who do command and control of our of our airplanes actually helped make that happen here. And we do that for anybody. That's one of the most important missions we do in in, in the Air Mobility Command is 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 uh, transporting our injured and our fallen. Those two missions are very important to us. But when it's someone you know, because one of my friends went, there's an, it's a female Air Force Colonel, and he went over to the medical folks and said, "Is it someone's? Is it Laurel Burkell?" And they're like, "How do you know that?" And so. We would take care of anybody, but when it's someone you know, there's a different urgency that it takes on. And I've worked in this in this command. I worked in it most of my career. So there was a bunch of generals there because they were supposed to be doing, they're watching a high visibility mission going on in a different part of the world. So it's a Sunday afternoon. So go back to it was Sunday afternoon. So they had better things they could be doing with their time, but they were there for that mission. And so when they started finding out that there was this med- medical evacuation mission that they're going to be doing, and it was for me. It got them. It when it's someone that you know, there's a little difference. I can imagine you're working in a in a hospital and having you know someone come in in an emergency room and having some, somebody you know. I mean, I think we see that in some of the TV shows, but in real life to have that happen. So so they let me walk on that airplane, and that's 
was a very powerful, I don't want to call it a statement, just it was the beginning of my, in some ways, my healing journey, that I was able to, to leave that country under my own power. I was able to start to walk into my recovery. And so I tell medical folks when I talk to them, I tell them, never forget that your cases are people. Because for them, you know, there's protocols. And I also know that for them, our air medical evacuation folks are incredible people. And they give their heart and soul to those missions. And a lot of our medical folks, like right now, especially during this pandemic, they're, they're working so hard to take care of people. And they keep doing it. And at the end of the day, sometimes our air medical folks don't know the end of the story because they land, they offload that patient to that hospital, and then they're gone. They don't really know how that story turns out. And think about the emotional spiritual resilience toll that takes on you. And so I, I, I tell them, you know, and so they kind of, I think they, they do some distancing probably. So it's tough for them because they're just like, Oh, this is this case. Da, 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 da. It's like, yeah, but that's a person. Don't forget that's a person. You know, I think that that, and that goes back to what the kind of the thread of what we're talking about is that we're all need to for, never forget that we're all people. We are all human people. We have the good good stuff with us and we have bad stuff with us and we're all human and we need those connections with each other again to when the good stuff happens and the bad. And so that story, that air evacuation was, uh, it's, it's a story. It's pretty, it, it really is kind of to me, kind of where my recovery sort of, there was the holding hands in there, but that's also another powerful piece of my, of my recovery journey. So I spent the three and a half months there at Longstool recovering. Spiritually, once I recovered, I went back to Canada where I was stationed. I moved down here to, or here to, uh, just outside St. Louis. And I had the opportunity to travel on what's called a, a Warriors to Lords pilgrimage. And it's it, in 2000, I went in 2017. And it was the 59th year of it. And it's a, a warrior, it's a military warrior pilgrimage to Lords France, to the, to the shrine there. 12 to 15,000 pilgrims from 30 different countries and 59th year of it. So it's not something new. And it is an opportunity for, for those, those warrior pilgrims to go and work on their spiritual aspect of their healing. And so I took some, a couple of really important uh, lessons away from that trip with respect to resilience and, and healing. And that is that, that human beings are inherently spiritual. In our in the military, I think sometimes, and I think in our American culture, we conflate religion and spirituality. Religion actually is an expression of spirituality. An atheist is spiritual, but every human being is spiritual. It's an inherent part of who we are, and there's a, re, a spiritual component of resilience that I really kind of just got a, an appreciation for on that trip. That that's an important part of who we are as people, as human beings, and we can't ignore it. And so for people who want to, you know, suppress stuff, I was just reading something today from a Medal of Honor winner, a little article about how after he received the Medal of Honor and how he started to think about how he processed the event in Afghanistan, the firefight in Afghanistan, that he was awarded that medal for, and that he realized that, you know, you can't keep that stuff down. You have to work at processing. And if you think about it, and I liken it to an earthquake, the pressure of the tectonic plates, right? That's why it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then we have an earthquake. If you don't allow the pressure to build up, that's going to lessen the opportunity for an earthquake to happen. So if you have, you know, something that happens in your day that bothers you, you got to process it. You know, I send out 700 plus Christmas cards a year 
Um, people go, that's crazy. Well, those are my people I make connections to. So when I, so back to that picture in, in the hospital, I sent that picture out. I couldn't say, Hey, I was in this helicopter crash. These people were killed, whatever. I, I couldn't say anything about what happened, but I'm a human being. How do I let my family and friends know? Well, I put that picture on Facebook and I wrote one tough bird T-U-F-F bird, Colonel Frank. And I just put it out there and I got on that C-17 and I wrote up to, I wrote up to Germany. And as people started to see that picture, one, we call it proof of life that, Hey, I'm still around got a collar on. So something's happened. And as people sort through it, they know that I'm there. And that, that one, so you're talking about what did I do to kind of keep, get myself going? And in that external thing, I had so many responses to that uh, message. And that's where social media can be a, a very powerful way to be connected. And in no way does it replace those human connections. It'd be great to be in person with you talking, but these platforms that we have really have helped us. We've gotten a much better understanding of the good they can bring to us over the last eight plus months now of how they can help us be connected. Cause those connections are what, again, it goes back to that, that, you know, that's where resilience is not an individual sport. Those connections are what matter to us. And so my, my connections, I had cultivated the people that supported me as I got ready to deploy during the deployment. Now I'm sending them a post, Hey, this happened. And so then I was sending them posts throughout my time in Germany of what was going on. I sent pictures of the x-rays that I want people to say, here's what I'm up against. You know, here's what I got to deal with. Oh, and then I got to wear this halo. And here's the first time we washed my hair, you know, and my brother and I, and how we figured out how to do that. Sharing the experience with other people. Yes. 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 And that's powerful for me. And it's, it's helpful to other people. I have people all the time. Well, you know, this happened to me. It's not nearly as bad as what happened to you. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's not have a competition about who has it worse or better. We all have things that we're, we're dealing with. And I think sometimes, you know, if something is, is difficult for me, my connections have the compassion to not say, oh, that's nothing. What do you, don't be worried about that. That's not what we should be doing. We should listen and wherever we can help. And sometimes it's simply just the act of listening. Cause you said, you know, talking through things, that's really important. I think, especially I can tell you that. The guy, what's his name? Is Dr. Gray, the Mars men are from Mars, winner from Venus. He did a book about thousands. What years. was it called? Mars and Venus in the workplace. And okay. what it actually says is that women tend to verbally process stuff. You're probably going, yes, I yes, that makes sense. It's not that women are coming to men and saying, I don't know what to do. I need your help deciding. Women are they probably already have in their mind what the decision is, but they're but we more we're just more apt to verbally process stuff. Guys really don't do that because there's a hierarchy. And so if you're talking to each other and you're sharing stuff, sometimes that can show a vulnerability that then are you losing your place in the hierarchy? Women yeah, are less about sense. that. Yeah. It's really, it was this really like revelation about, you know, I'm like, Oh, that's why I talk a lot. Okay. <laughs> right. That's why I, I, well, I don't know. I, I talk <laughs> a lot too. Let me interject a little bit. Cause I, I one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about other people who have maybe less severe situations that happen to them, but that require resiliency nonetheless, because it, I can imagine it'd be easy to hear your story about the ghastly crash and the fact that, you know, only a few people survived and, and everything that you went through and, and have that same reaction, which is like, well, I mean, I'm not going through what she went through, you know, like, of course she, you know, 
shares this stuff because because it helps people. But like nobody no, sharing my story is not going to help anybody, right? It's uh, this is my thing. I'm I'm weak if I have to share this thing because it's so small. I think that's a very common fear, right? That we're going to show weakness in some way, and maybe that goes back to men in the hierarchy. But like it's that you know I, I'm going to show that I can't handle something. I'm going to show that I'm weak in some way that I'm or that I'm deficient in some way because I've allowed this to affect me. What do you share with those people? And, and how do you think about those situations versus your situation? I think we shouldn't, if, if it's something that it, you're, you're trying to carry, then lean on your connections, whether it's something big or it's something small that I have stuff, little things here and there. I'm like, ah! you know, uh, I mean, I process that and, and it helps me, should I need to access it for a bigger thing? I, I think that we're our own worst critics. We're our own worst judges of what we should and shouldn't be worried about or share. And sometimes you just have to, if it's bugging you, then then talk to someone. That's where those connections and cultivating and, and different connections are the people you'll go to perhaps for different things. You know, I have friends that if I've got, you know, this kind of situation, you know, I call and I talk to my dad. I listen to my dad. With my mom gone, my dad is is kind of lonely. So I will call him and just let him, he just blah, blah, blah. You know, he'll go on and I let, because I know he just needs to talk to someone. You know, he just needs to talk to someone. And some of it, you know, he has an RV trailer and I hear all about the different systems on the RV trailer. But that's important for me to take the time to be there for him. You know, he's been there for me my entire life. And so our connection. Well, there was something... There was something you just said there, which I think is really insightful and it was quick. So I want to make sure we got to it, which is, you know, you said, well, I still have little things. And I think that's interesting. You hear stories like yours and you think, oh, well, she drew on this. She had this one terrible thing happen to her and she's drawn on this resilience. And that's what's gotten her through as if that was the only hard thing that's ever happened in your life. And you don't go through the same day to day difficulties that the rest of humanity go through right it's not that those went away because now you're suddenly resilient like you still need to draw on those things all the time i love that you just said that every day it's like you're always drawing on resilience it's just do you just need a little bit of resilience here do you need a lot of resilience but you always you're always drawing on it for different situations absolutely and and again we're our own worst critics about whether oh this is not a big deal nobody's going to want to care you know your your connections are there for you and and if you reached out to them. One, you show them that they matter to you for stuff. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, out of this crash, uh, my best friend is is my major's oldest sister, Kathy, who, was, who lives there in Chicago. And what happened is Phyllis came from a big family and they, they went to her funeral at the Air Force Academy where she was buried and their kids, they wanted their kids to go. Well, the Air Force will, will pay for the siblings to go because both of their parents are deceased but not that not their children necessarily. So they started doing GoFundMe. So I'm in my room and this is where giving each other some purpose sometimes can really make a difference. Uh, and I heard about this GoFundMe and this is before I even had the surgery to have the halo put on. I'm like, I want to help. So I put it out on my Facebook page. And by this point I had become friends with one or two of Phyllis's sisters or something. So then I get this thing that, Hey, my name is Kathy. I'm Phyllis's oldest sister. I'd like to talk to you. Can I call you? I'm thinking, Oh my God, what's this going to be? Is she going to yell at me? Is she, how is this going to be? 
what she was calling me for was to thank me for putting that out there. And so we kind of established that connection at that point and continued to, to interact with each other during my time in Germany. And, you know, we became pretty close. And so when I got back, when I went back to Canada, I made a trip to Chicago in February of 2016 and met her and we hit it off and we've been friends ever since. And so our grief, we walk our grief journey together. And so that, you know, if you are, Sometimes that act of reaching out can bring those kinds of good things into your life. You know, I'm not saying it's easy. On the flip side, Greg's family, his his wife resides in this area here. She retired from the base as well, yet I'm not friends with her on Facebook. I never see her. And you have to think about her for a minute and think about a little bit of the difference here. Phyllis is a major, so she's an officer who worked for me. Um, I knew Phyllis for a lot, three and a half months. Greg, I knew for a week. Greg was a master sergeant. I was in the helicopter when her husband was killed. I was there. I lived. He didn't. There's, you know, so that's what really the difference in some of the folks that I have interacted with who are from, you know, related to the crash. That's the the spectrum of grief that it's just being mindful of what other people are carrying. And so, you know, that person that cuts you off on I-94, right? And you're like, I mean, what, what's going on with them? You know, I had a friend whose landlord is giving her some some trouble right now. And I said, what is going on with him that would, would change his behavior? Is there something going on with him that you that you don't know about? And so sometimes, you know, trying to, to reflect those things back to, you know, other people are dealing with stuff too. And I'm not saying you should just say, oh, it's okay that you cut me off or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying maybe if some grace and some compassion, we can, if I'm doing that, that's kind of, if, you, if you're focusing on those kinds of things, it kind of styles back some of the stuff that you're, you know, you're focusing on other people. Like a lot of people said gratitude stuff and, you know, going out and doing things in this time of the pandemic, how can we help other people that helps us? And sometimes, and, and there's a lot of, there's some grains of truth to that. There's absolutely some grains of truth to that. So Kathy is totally different than Phyllis. I mean, there <laughs> sometimes there's personality stuff, but then I'll, you know, I'll see like, her, their eyes are the similar. And so it's comforting that we have, you know, Phyllis and Greg aren't on this earth anymore, but, but there are people that remind us of them. Uh, and that can be comforting in no way does it completely replace, you know, give us them back, but there's those bits and pieces of comfort, our family, when we lose like our mother or loved one, that's tough. And we carry that grief, but the family that are uh, that part of our family, some of those folks have little bits and pieces of that person in them that can give us some, some comfort of that person still kind of being around uh, and not completely in, you know, 100% gone, which is what I, you know, I find with my mom, like my sisters, you know, there's bits and pieces every once in a while. I'm like, Oh, that reminds my mom. People tell me I have my mom a voice. My voice sounds like my mom's. And so for people who grieve her loss, when they talk to me, it's probably, it attenuates that grief, but it also kind of soothes it, if you will. And so, you know, I think, if we're aware that there are those things, they can help us with, with that grief journey. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I think it does. And I know that we are, uh, we're past time. I think here, you've been very generous in sharing your story and, and the lessons that you've learned. It, it makes me think I listened to an interview with a gentleman, uh, Rabbi Sachs, who was the, head rabbi in the UK for a long period of time. And I think he's a member of the House of Lords right now. And they were talking about 
coming through this period of time and whether we'll end up better off or, or worse off, you know, kind of as humanity. And one of the things that he was talking about is that humanity ebbs and flows between being outwardly focused and being inwardly focused. And if you look at periods where things start to go bad, it's where we get more inwardly focused. And where you look at at periods of time where we've thrived, it's where we have been more outwardly focused. And that hopefully in going through this period of time, we all realize that we need other people and we can come out of this and be be outwardly focused, be community focused. And I've just been thinking about that as you've been talking. I think the big takeaway for me is just to reinforce that message of building into the community around you, sharing with them, being open with them, also listening to them, helping through the things that they're going through. And I think the more, that's what actually one of the, two takeaways that I've had in doing this podcast and, and talking to so many people about all kinds of people dynamics is the one is the more humble and two is the more community based we can be the just the better all different elements of our life whether it's our business or our mental health or our family or any the more we can we can have that community focus the better off we're all going to be so I I appreciate you sharing your story here today. And, and Can I give you, so I, I have, uh, when I give this presentation, there's five points that kind of fold into what you're talking about. And I want to highlight those to you. Then I want to quick sure. tell the story about my retirement on Mount Kilimanjaro. I think that kind of is a, is an uplifting kind of segue of all of that, the journey of recovery and it, and it continuing to this day. But, you know, the resilience is not an individual sport and that we, we do need each other to celebrate that good stuff in life. And then when, when things are tougher, and that we need to support and take care of ourselves and then each other. And that, again, we're our nation, our loved ones, our organization's greatest treasures, and that those connections are what matter. So that's the first point. The second one is bloom wherever life in your career plants you. Look for and leverage the good of your situation. I mean, I was stationed in Monterey, California, and spent 18 glorious months getting a master's degree there. There are people that hated that assignment. I don't even understand that because it's beautiful. We're getting paid to be there. You know, it, I mean, there is something good, even in the darkest of things, there's something, there's something good. And if you are kind of that sort of that, it's not an outward focus. It's, it's just, it's acknowledging that there's tough stuff. I have a friend that she's on her second round of breast cancer and she's an air force and she's in her thirties. And it's like, that's not fair. She shouldn't be doing that. She shouldn't have to do that twice, but she has so many connections on Facebook, she's posting things people are sending, whether it's a card or a gift. She's got some of them. It's not people. She's like, I don't know who sent this, but thank you. You know, and that is what kind of we've been talking about for the last uh, bit of time here. Get in shape for your life. You never know when you might need it or for yourself or to be able to help others. If those guys, those folks that ran towards that helicopter hadn't taken care of themselves, they would not have been able to do what they did that day to help us out. And that I wouldn't have survived and been in the position to recover. And, and, and I say physical focus on physical shape, but it's also emotional and spiritual shape. Like your spirituality, if you're, if you're religious based, make sure you're maintaining that, you know, especially in this tough time. Sometimes that's the thing that we kick to the curb. You know, those are important parts of who we are and, and maintaining that shape, the emotional shape. We talk about that because you never know when you might need that or when a friend might need you to be there for them to help them in, in a tough situation or something good. 
nurture and be dynamic excellence. A true measure of a leader is whether they grow people in themselves, their potential and beyond. So that's whether growing the resilience, growing them to their their potential in the business. So I know some of this relates to business stuff for you is how do we do that? How are we folks who help each other grow into our potential and then some? And then celebrating those milestones, yours and others, take time to smell those roses. We focus on the tougher stuff, but what about the good stuff? You know, sometimes if we don't take the time to do that and, and, and have those positive experiences, that can actually impact our ability to deal with when a negative, something negative comes our way. And so the story of, of, of my retirement ceremony, I made my decision to retire and I had seen the first colonel I worked for in the Air Force. And he came out here to the base in Illinois for a ceremony. And he comes up to me and gives, it's the first time I see him before the crash. And I came here, I started back to work. I had a few restrictions on some, whether I can deploy. Uh, I did a fitness, I got 99.1 out of 100. I normally got 99.8 or nine, um, but I was pretty excited about nearly a year after the crash, I was able to do that. So my physical recovery, I'm working on, you know, the emotional recovery. So he's like, hey, I'm getting a Leukemia Lymphoma Society team and training group together to go hike Mount Kilimanjaro. It'd be great <laughs> to have you on the team with your story and your background. And I'm like, okay. And I went home that night and went, what in the world did I just say yes to? I'm not a crazy adventure. You know, this is like a crazy thing going to kill. This is 19,341 feet. But Jenna Roser is a really amazing leader. And a lot of my leadership and compassion and whatnot are modeled after after him. He retires as a one-star general. Uh, so I'm not going to say no to him. So like, okay, I guess I'm hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. So about that time, I'm like, okay, I'm going to retire. I really don't want to do the standard ceremony. I just want to kind of leave quietly. And that's really kind of something that the Air Force frowns upon. They want you to do a ceremony. So I saw him at a conference later that fall. And he said, well, let's do it on the mountain. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. My retirement ceremony in Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. So that's what we did. So we had this group of people, about half or two thirds were military, retired military that he knew or I knew. I recruited a few of my friends that every day I was like, is today the day you're going to hate me because we're, you know, hiking higher and it's tougher, right? Is this the day you're going to say, I hate you for inviting me on this hike? But everybody was so excited the day we summited. I had an American flag in my pack. One of my friends, the guys who is a retired colonel, and he was the proffer. So he had his pillow he slept on. He put my retirement pin on that. He was so excited. That was his role when we got to the top. Another guy read my retirement. Yeah, read my retirement order. Uh, the general said some words that in the Tanzanians thought this was so cool that we were doing this on their mountain. So celebrating that, that, that important milestone in my career there was crazy. And so I love saying it to people saying, you know, go big or go home when it's time to do the, the, the positive stuff. You know what? Don't just say, Oh, I'm gonna do a ceremony. Okay. If that works for you and that's what you, what's right. Then okay, great. But, but you know, get after those milestones, you know, smell those roses. What does that mean to you? You know, does it mean, I mean, the people that, that propose at like, you know, the, the baseball stadium or the football, I mean, that's, that's cool stuff. Yeah. You're, you're speaking my language. I, I love that. I, my big thing is if I can shoot for the biggest thing and land even a few rungs down, I'm still going to wind up with a pretty, pretty amazing experience. Yeah. I love that. Yes. And so if you, if you have that, if you're going after things like that, when something tough hits you, then you've got the goodness of bad experience to kind of kind of buoy you up a little bit. You know, I mean, we're all going to have days where we're going to get down, but that stuff, you know, 
it's just, I mean, I think sometimes we sell ourselves too short on the positive stuff too. Oh, I don't have time to celebrate that, you know, or this, this milestone in my life happens. And I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Whatever. It's like, no, it should be a big, cool deal. And how can you make it that way? You know, and it goes back to the innovative spirit of humanity. This, the, you know, our spirituality, the innovation that we all have within that those all are things that, that impact our resilience. Uh, that that's a beautiful way to finish this, I think, because talking about resilience can often be a little depressing in and of itself, right? Because you're talking about going through these tough times, you're talking about you know forging ahead in these tough moments. But to your point, like life is also great, and so make the most of those great moments. And if you can, if you can make a habit of celebrating, then when those tough moments come, you you might have a little bit more resilience in the tank to push through them. So I, I think that's a beautiful place to end. Buff, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your service and everything you've done for our country. Thank you for still going out and sharing your story. I think it's really important. And I just can't imagine the the people it's it's helped already. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, I, I want to say that when I do, when I do tell my story, or I spent this time talking to you, I'm healing. Because that's a process that will continue the rest of my life. And so anytime I am talking about this, sharing this, it heals me. And so thank you for that opportunity for me. Uh, like I said, it's a, that's a lifelong work in progress. And I think sometimes if we just realize that, you know, some of the things we grieve and some of the things that happen, that that healing that, we need, that we're doing is, is a lifelong project. And that's okay. You know, instead of saying, oh, I got to finish it and get on. No, that's not really kind of how it works in the real picture it's a it's a lifelong journey and i think sometimes if we just look at it that way that can kind of set us on a on a much better uh, frame of mind to go forth in life and carry it perfect well everybody out there listening go forth in life carry it celebrate it and have a good one thank you Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.